1: Hello, I'm David Kern with the Searcy Podcast Network, and this is the Ask Andrew Podcast, a weekly show in which Andrew Kern answers your questions about the purpose, essence, and practice of Christian classical education. The episode you are about to listen to was recorded this spring as part of the Ask Andrew webinar series and has been lightly edited to suit the podcast experience specifically. To learn more about the webinars, the podcast, or how to submit a question, head over to searcyinstitute.com askandrew. And with that, here is this week's episode. Hope you enjoy. I just have to say to begin with that I have very mixed emotions right now, and I'm riding a roller coaster because I just left some of you in the last atrium class of the year. So that I see at least three of you from that class. It's nice to see you again. But my favorite line from Dumb and Dumber is, "I hate goodbyes," and that's that's how I feel about this last this class that just came to an end. So, um, we have hardships to live in our lives, but we can turn that into a transition because it's good to see all of you, and that's what we're all looking forward to, isn't it? in the end there's there's all these goodbyes in this world but ultimately what we're looking for is the second coming i mean think of that that's what that's what we're looking forward to the glorification when we get to hang out with each other forever so that seems fitting because what i wanted to talk about tonight was basically to to continue the discussion on dealing with the crisis So the the issue that that we started to talk about on Tuesday was just dealing with the fact of the COVID-19, dealing with the fact of the inconvenience. And I'm curious, and I don't want to pry by any means, but I'm curious to know, we as a group, how much have we suffered? Um, There's... there's, um, 38 million people who are unemployed in America who had jobs in January, which is just stunning to think of. By the mercy and grace of God, I have a job. I still, still get to work with Circe, still get to hang out with you guys on a Tuesday and Thursday evening. And I'm very thankful for it. But I, I, I'm I'm curious to know. Again, I don't I don't want to pry or anything. But I'm curious to know: have have some of you or your husbands or your wives lost jobs? Have any of you are any of you involved in in medicine, and maybe have had to endure some of the bizarre things going on in the the medical realms? Any deep hardship, or maybe let me put it this way: then what what have you found? To be particularly challenging about this time, has it been social, intellectual, spiritual? I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll tell you what I'm experiencing. Okay, so, so a scheduled layoff, man, yeah, losses. We're in the oil field, absolutely. My goodness, huh? Deep sense of responsibility. Huh, the seclusion is tough, isn't it? One of the one of the hardest things for me is is has been the, the just the breakdown of the routine. That you know, it's 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 a funny thing. You I, let me put it this way: How many of you have noticed things that you really appreciate having that you didn't know you appreciated having be, before this? Like children, for example. No, I'm just kidding. But but has there been has there been anything that that you've had to exercise more discipline on, or that, you know, just, let's say you took for granted before. Two acres of land, huh? Yeah. Little league piano lessons. Yeah. Yeah. Routines, right? That's, that's a big deal. Yeah. Just being able to leave the house at will. Yeah. Reading books. That's good. Spring sports. Yeah. Yeah. Rest. Oh boy. Get those kids out of my house. Eating too often, too much. Yeah, I get that. I I was swimming pretty regularly for an old man before the break. And then the gym closed down, and I don't have access to a pool anymore. And the first three, four weeks, it was a drag. I was walking, it was okay. And then my back went out on me, and my knees went out on me. And now I'm noticing that I'm not gaining weight, but I'm turning into a marshmallow again. And I really hate that. I mean, I really, really hate that. The pain is, is trouble enough, but becoming a marshmallow, that's just no dignity in that. So pray that, pray that the pool opens up soon. One of the things I've found really hard to do is because I don't have an office that I go to, I've always, well, for a long time, I've had a study in, in the house. But I don't have an office that is specifically designated for work now. So meetings are online and so on. It's really hard to make the distinction between work and being at home. I think it is for everybody. And maybe that's okay because maybe, maybe it's more like living on a farm, right? What if if a if a wife is is gardening in the in the front lawn and taking care of plants, is that work or taking care of the home. (laughs) And if, and if the, the, the man is out in the field plowing, is he, is he working? Well, yeah, he's working, but then he comes in and he, and he has to clean his tools and sort stuff. But now he's into a hobby, right? No, he's not. But you know, maybe, maybe the whole work life distinction is bogus anyway. And the reason it's come up is because the work we have to do is bogus. I don't know. Um, Most, most work, again, I Facebook post, you know, some of you might've seen about ecosystems. It's, it's fascinated me how God built an ecosystem that when we wrestle with it, it humanizes us, right? You can, you can garden and you learn about everything. But when Steve Jobs build an e- builds an ecosystem, when you wrestle with it, it doesn't really do you any good beyond solving the ecosystem, right? You, you, you figure out how Zoom works. I guess there's a bit of that that's transferable to how Microsoft Word works. Not really much. Right, there's not it's not an integrated holistic ecosystem, which is why it always made two things that always have made me laugh about the computer industry. One is their emphasis on holistic things and the other is their emphasis on the environment. I mean, good grief. How many plastic mainframes are floating around in junkyards and ocean bags all over the world and then they come out with these whole campaigns about the environment nothing has ever hurt the environment more the computer than the computer except the car so we have this ecosystem that dehumanizes us and we have to make the best of it and so here we are trying to make the best of it right i hope but the difficulty of not having a liturgy to life of not having a routine to life of not having a morning and an evening not having the week even is is challenging and i am i am a very uh, disorganized person by nature and that makes me need order need boundaries in ways that perhaps a, a more naturally organized person doesn't need i need very com- i need I need lots of filing systems, for example, so that I can lose everything completely and never find it because it's in the wrong file. But that sort of, that sort of structure to life, that's been really hard for me not having that, um, not having another place to go. That's just for the business side. Let's call it has been hard for me. So I've been, I've been going back to, um, I've been going back to, to thinking more and more about Genesis, Genesis 1, which I think we've talked about this, right? And, and how does that lay out the life that we're supposed to live? Because I really believe God is not laying out a law there. He's laying out the order of being, the order of effectiveness, the order of peace. And then he commands the Israelites, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then it's a command. But long before it was a command, it was just part of the pattern of life. And ultimately, it has a spiritual fulfillment. But I want to make a distinction for you that you may or may not find valuable in order to think about things that are going on. And it's not an unusual distinction. But it helps me put things in categories to to then interact with and try to find solve, problem solve, find solutions to problems. And this is going to really surprise you. But I distinguish, for this purpose, the physical from the psychological from the spiritual. And when I say psychological, I include in that what modern people mean by psychology, which is, can be anything really, but um, human behavior, emotion management, you know, all that stuff. Um, but I want to make this fundamental point about it which I believe is essential to us as Christians and also unique, a gift to us as Christians that the non-Christian simply doesn't have. And that that is this, that the physical realm is an honored and worthy realm that is very important, but is of almost no value in comparison to the soulish realm. And the soulish realm is incredibly valuable and beautiful and rich and gives, it's the realm of happiness and joy and honor,
2: but it is of almost no value compared to the spiritual realm. And the spiritual realm is given to us and awakened for us and enlivened for us
1: by the simple gift of the Holy Spirit. And if we are living, I mean, Paul says over and over again, be filled with the Spirit. If you live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. Right? He's talking about a mode of existence, a realm of existence, if you like. And all of his writings, all of his writings revolve, in my opinion, in my understanding, revolve around this fact that the spiritual being, the spiritual person, has a perception of reality that is different from the, 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 the psychological person or the physical person. Okay. So so you, you'll read the, in the... Okay, I'm just going to make assertions here, and then you guys can can uh, get angry at me and ask questions about them or whatever. But in the Bible, there's a word that Paul uses in the Greek that is sarx, S-A-R-X, if you want to transliterate. It means flesh, this. And then there's a word that he uses, suche, or suchecon even, suchecon, psyche. P-S, in English, Y-C-H-E. In Greek, that's more or less pronounced suche.
2: I can't speak Greek.
1: And then there's the spirit, which in Greek would be (laughs) pneuma. P-N-E-U-M-A. We get pneumatics from that. It has to do with breath, right?
2: The Latin word is spiritus, and therefore the English word is spirit. And the Latin word for breath is spiritus.
1: In the first couple chapters of the book of First Corinthians, Paul describes human beings as people who, who are governed by or who live in the realm of one of those three things. You can be a fleshly person, meaning that you are governed by your body, or you can be a con, a soulish person, meaning that you're governed by your soul, or you can be a spiritual person, meaning that you're governed by your spirit. Now you can only be a spiritual person if you have been given the Holy Spirit who brings life to your spirit And this is the whole point of all of this, as I understand it. The Holy Spirit enables your spirit to govern your soul and
2: enables your soul to govern your body. If you can't govern your body and your body governs you, you're in trouble.
1: This is true to anybody because our soul can perceive that. Right? Our
2: soul can perceive that if the body is ruling me, I'm in trouble. It's going to kill me.
1: <laughs> the mistake that we make is that we think the soul should govern us. This mistake is traceable back to Aristotle. Aristotle, in, in his ethics, describes the perfect educated human being. He calls him the the megalos sukecon. When they translate that into English, I mean into Latin, it becomes the magna anima, magnanima, magnanimous, right? We've reduced that to being generous. What they meant by that was the man of
2: great soul. You see, a man of great soul. Here's the problem with being a man of great soul, which is
1: to say, a person who's supremely classically educated. That's what a, mag, a megalosuchekon is. That's the goal of classical education, megalosuchekon, a perfectly developed soul.
2: For some reason, the translators of many Bibles call that person the natural man.
1: Now, I get what they're doing, but I think it's a horrifyingly misleading translation. Because what he's talking about is the man governed by the soul.
2: And it would be easier to just say so. Right? The soulish man. Here's what Paul says of that person. The supremely educated person cannot see the things of God. Now, think about that. This might seem so pointless to you in relation to this trial that we're going through, but think about this. If your body is governing you during this trial, it doesn't help, does it? It doesn't provide good counsel. I'm getting soft. My back hurts. It's not my friend. It doesn't make a good master. So a step up
1: from that would be if my soul governs me. That would be better. Maybe now I'm what Lewis called the man with a chest. Maybe I've got a sense of honor, and I can handle the pain, and I can handle the day-to-day trials because I've got a sense of honor. And I'm not going to embarrass myself by being temperamental and whiny. I'm going to be honorable. Or maybe, maybe I, I'm gonna use the cleverness that, that God has given me, or maybe I'm gonna use the just the social niceness that God that, that I have. So I've got these trainings in my soul. Those are all hypothetical. I, I, I've got a well well-trained soul, right? Great. That's gonna be better, isn't it? That person's gonna do a lot better with suffering than
2: the person who's governed by his body but he's not going to see God's purposes in this. Then you have this very, very simple person. A person who enters into the closet
1: of his inner self when he prays, and he abides with Christ, and Christ abides in him. And maybe he's not well-educated. Maybe, maybe
2: he doesn't have a sophisticated soul but maybe he is so full of faith and hope and love. Maybe he is so full of hope. that Everything that happens to him. It makes perfect sense. This, this is, this is me being repaired by God. This is me abiding in Christ. If we're going to go through any trial in life, and we can't do like St. James said at the beginning of his epistle and, and rejoice in and count it all joy when you enter into any trial. Well, let me say this. Your body won't. You can talk your soul into it, but there's all the difference in the world between giving yourself a pep talk
1: or psychologically maneuvering yourself to accept this, to rejoice
2: in this, and talking yourself up and resting in God. For one thing, one is exhausting.
1: You know, I, could, I, I can get up in the morning and I can remind myself of all the important things to do in the day and how important a guy I am and how everything in the whole world depends on my well-being and, and how if I don't do everything really hot today and perfect and everything's exceptional then the whole world's going to fall apart. I can do all kinds of things to manipulate myself into thinking that I matter. But that's all I'm doing. On the other hand, if in my heart, in my soul, In
2: my spirit, I can come into the presence of God and repent and receive him. Then I can enter into his rest and his rest can enter into me.
1: And what I hear from people who are like that or read about
2: them or see in their lives is that they just don't respond the same way. They
1: don't make sense to those of us who are body and soulish people. And the reason I, 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 and again, I have gone over, I'm sorry, but the reason, the reason I, 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 it seems worth it to focus on this is because I can give you practical, physical things to do. It would have value and, and I could give you psychological things to do to console you and comfort you and, you know, feel better about your life. Or I could give you a joke book or something. You know, I could, I could tell you, don't worry, be happy, stuff like that. You know, I could, I could give you some psychological tips or I could lead you to some good books on psychology like uh, The Road Less Traveled or you know, something like that. I could, I could offer some books like that and they'd be valuable. They'd be more valuable than giving
2: you these physical tips. But they won't ultimately matter. They won't do it. They won't bring you through this. Somehow some some somehow there are people who
1: look at suffering as a chance to die, as Elizabeth Elliott called her book about Amy Carmichael. A chance to die. Somehow there are people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who Remind us that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. But that dying is our joy. That is our joy. So I want to I end by giving you one suggestion, one spiritual-ish suggestion. And that is that you, you meditate your way through the book of 1 Corinthians with this framework, with this way of thinking about it. I want to propose that one helpful way to read Corinthians is this. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he basically says to them, you think like children
2: and you're very foolish. You need to think like grown men.
1: And this is how you do it. And by grown men, he means spiritually mature people. And what he does is he goes through issue by issue by issue. And he says, here's the issue you're dealing with. You're thinking like children. If you were thinking like grown men, this is how you would think. And just make a list, maybe on a sheet of paper even. Make a list of, 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 of what issue is he dealing with and how is he saying they would think if they were grown men. Now, I have a warning for you. When I read what he's saying about what grown men would do, I, it usually doesn't make sense to me. I mean, I can I can act like I get it, but... You know, when it comes to actually living it, I don't get it most of the time. But I'll hold out this, this, this kind of opportunity to you. If you read the book of 1 Corinthians like this, issue by issue, when you get to 1 Corinthians 13 and you reflect back on fe- chapters 1, 2, and 3 and realize that the whole time he's been building up to 1
2: Corinthians 13, you will read that chapter in a way you've never seen it before. And it's always been a beautiful chapter, let's face it, right?
1: You will see beauties in that chapter that you didn't realize were there before if you take it on this path. So, so during this time, let me offer that to you as a, as a spiritual exercise that I think you could find very profitable. Don't be in a hurry. Doesn't
2: matter if you get it done. It's not going to be graded, but just feed on it, and and as you do it, just ask the Lord to show you what does it mean to be a spiritual person in a time of trial. Um, and then and then while you do it, find one thing. Find one thing
1: where your body is ruling over you instead of you ruling over your body and make it really simple, (laughs) but take charge, right? I I mentioned on Tuesday that I've lost about 30 pounds in the last 18 months. I think I did um, just by cutting sugar out of my diet and shifting over to a high protein diet. Right. I mean, it's just, it's a different, it's a different mode of being. If you want to be depressed, if you want to be unstable, if you want to have stomach pain, if you want to be vulnerable to disease, eat lots of sugar. It tastes great. But, you know, and, but, but now, if you're addicted to sugar, I'm not saying start with that. Okay, just find one thing. Find one thing where your body is ruling you, and just take dominion over your body. And do that while you are reading Corinthians and do that prayerfully because it's by your spirit
2: that you take control of your body. It's not, it's not even by your soul. It's not pep talks I'm talking about here. It's by your spirit. And as, as you ask the Lord to give you the spirit, remember, one of the f- part of the fruit
1: of the spirit is self-control, right? And as you ask the Holy Spirit to give you that gift, he will. He won't give it to you in the way that you expect him to or want him to, but he'll
2: give it to you. Just keep asking. So, again, maybe nothing like what you expected on a talk about
1: dealing with the coronavirus crisis. Um, But, I mean, if you wanted to hear what you could hear according to what you expected, just write it down. (laughs) Does anger count? Well, anger is a soul move. And the, the thing I would say about anger is that, that anger comes from a frustrated desire. And, and, and so what you want to ask yourself is, what is, what is the desire I, I'm getting frustrated here? I'm having frustrated. Can I offer this to God? So example, the two, two that come to my mind quickest on anger um, would be the frustration of, of lost dominion. Right. I, I think a lot of what we're reading and some of what we're even writing among ourselves on, on the uh, Facebook or wherever about these jerks who have shut down society, that's us being angry about our lost dominion. Right. And, and, and what we do is we, we, as fast as we can, we come up with a principle of freedom or liberty or fear of our government or whatever. And that's, that's how that we then enable, we then use that to let anger flow. Well or maybe to suppress our anger, but come up with a mode
2: of expressing it. We're losing our dominion. Oh, well, offer it to God. If you can't offer your dominion to God, you shouldn't have it anyway. And another,
1: another thing that we can get frustrated about another lost, failed desire, frankly, is our desire for
2: glory, right? We, we want to be, honored beings. We want to hear people say, well done, but never forget
1: this. Nobody will ever honor you as much as you want.
2: It is impossible. You have a, you have a a honor hunger that was placed in you by God
1: because he wants to satisfy it. And if you look to anybody other than God to satisfy your desire for glory and honor, you will become a very unhappy person. It's a chasing after the wind. It's vanity. But God will God will say it to you, "Well done." But you have to have the spirit of hope, right? You have to have the spirit of hope. So, when when you feel angry, ask yourself, "What do you, what is it that you want that is being frustrated?" And then, whatever that is, when you are able, offer it up to God. And and if when you're angry. You can't offer it from the depth of your emotion up to God. Then, then offer it to Him angry, right? Just say, "Lord, this this really irritates me." Lord, even swear if you want. Lord, this makes me so angry. You take it. I'm too whatever, right? Just, but give it to God. He's a very big boy. He can handle it. Um, and then, and then when you've calmed down, ask Him if He heard you. <laughs> most
0: important. I have to stop you. Pardon? It's nine thirty-two. I've been letting I, you continue. I'm on my third question. What? When did you move on to your third question?
2: Does anger count?
0: Are you seriously throwing your own questions at yourself now? You're do you're
1: asked that? Somebody asked me that question. It's on there.
0: Fine.
2: 8:27. Um My
0: gosh. Okay, fine. Okay, so you're on question number three. Well, I've got three questions here for you. Question four. Well, father, pay
1: attention to your father every now and again. You'd know what's going on.
0: I know what's going on.
1: Okay. No, I'm (laughs) only going on.
0: We have more questions to answer now.
1: All right. We'll count this next one as question three, since that's what it really is.
0: I will. There's no point even timing you. Why do I? continue the charade you should do
1: your job whether it works or not
0: just just go (laughs) i'm the one supposed to be taking dominion over this can't you see that
2: you're
1: in despair come on go on which one
0: of us is supposed to offer this to god i think it's me because i'm the one suffering
1: i think we probably both should and now we should get past this and, and get along again all right carry on I love you. Give me a question.
0: (laughs) Um, So this person has a question about um, from your atrium class, thinking about dialectic and rhetoric again, coming back to that, um, making some distinctions. So can you explain how dialectic is different from rhetoric? And then also, is it the same as invention? Is it a subcategory? How do we even um, understand the relationship between these things?
2: Wow,
1: that's, that's a, okay, so the question basically is what's the relationship between dialectic and rhetoric, and that means the question is what is dialectic? And the trouble with that is that throughout history, people have used the word in very different ways. Example, Hegel came up with a whole philosophical method called the Hegelian dialectic which was reduced by a follower to a formula that says there's a thesis, an antithesis, and a synthesis, and that's how existence works. Well, he's on to something, but that's not all of being, right? So so dialectic has been that. There's a Marxist dialectic, which also is a reduced method. I think the crucial point for the classical Christian educator is that when we think of a dialectic, we never, ever think of a method. We never reduce it to a method. At the very least, it's a mode of inquiry that, that guides us toward the truth, the least. Now, some people equate formal logic with dialectic. I don't have a problem with that in loose language, but historically that would be less than is meant by the term dialectic. Um, in Socrates, dialectic means that you search the truth with by any means necessary, by any means possible right? You you find out what does it take to get the truth and then you go after it. From that Socratic quest for the truth arose things like the quadrivium. Well, actually that came before him, but he used the quadrivium as a means to seek the truth. In that sense, the four arts of the quadrivium, and in fact, all seven of the liberal arts, are dialectic, right? So, you, a literal translation of dialectic would be a dialogical engagement, right? Now, that dialogue can take place inside your own head. But then some people have gone so far, and I'm probably one of them, who have said that dialectic is the governing principle of being. You could translate logos. In the beginning was the logos. You could translate logos as dialectic, I think, possibly. It's the idea of, of something that goes beyond the thought process as we are conscious of it to the very form of being itself as it extends, let's say, out of God into the world. Right. So, yeah, there you go. Um, So that's, that's how I perceive dialectic. Now, rhetoric is a, is a practical art oriented toward the harmonizing of a community. It is governed by and governs dialectic. Right. So So the the truths of logic serve rhetoric in the quest for harmony in a community, in the quest for wisdom. Um, I probably am out of time, so so I'll stop there because you're not doing your job again.
0: Yes. That yes was to its time, not to me not doing my job. (laughs) Would you say it is not the same as invention?
1: I would say that invention is an is a dialectical act, but so is arrangement, right? Mm-hmm. And in a and in a certain way, so is elocution. Um, all of those involve governing, following, integrating, being into a into a discussion, into a speech, into a decision. That's how I'll answer that. What, what you have, to, let me just say this. What, what you have to keep as careful as you can is you can use dialectic and logic interchangeably as long as you know that that's not how everybody else does, that dialectic also is this unimaginably transcendent structure of being, for lack of a better term. You'll never exhaust it. You can't learn all the laws of dialectic. You could learn all the rules of formal
2: logic.
0: Yes. Um, I just want to say to Amy Morgan, who just said, could you rule in such a way as to bless? Tolkien. One word answer, Tolkien. Um, I know that question wasn't directed to me, but I thought you would take right, a lot I more than what Morgan.
1: Wendy wrote, too, which I think she's talking about. Um, I think Wendy's talking about dialectic and you're talking about governing. But but what Wendy says there, that which weaves but is not the fiber. I like that. Dialectic is the is God weaving, if you like. yeah, huh? It does permeate the fiber, though. <laughs> um, okay, and then and then I also would like to comment on 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 the discussion about about dominion and ruling um, in that Christian rule, biblical rule, is always about blessing, always.
2: God rules for the blessing of what, what, what he rules. Um, Always. We rule for ourselves. Okay. All right. Kate.
0: Another question. You ready?
2: Yes. Well, Uh, we'll see.
0: This one is long and you're going to want to answer it before I get to the end. So I'm telling you that now so that you don't wait until you hear the end of the question. Um, This was emailed to me. So I'm going to read the whole thing off. Would the should question be appropriate Never. in a situation? Excuse me?
1: Never. Oh, am I supposed to wait? Sorry.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah. Would the should question be appropriate in a situation where the students are not yet capable of answering that question due to lack of foundational information or basic experience? Example, we can ask a three year old whether or not they should cross the road because they may not yet understand why they should or shouldn't. Would it be appropriate or wise to ask a student? whether or not they should cut the blue or red wire to stop the bomb from exploding if the student knows nothing about bomb construction. In literature, does the should question lead to a more relativistic view of ethics? Didn't the author have a specific lesson in mind when they wrote the story? So that oh. has many components.
1: Yeah, the, 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 the first part, of, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna start with the before in literature part and say I think that's a very good distinction. It's a very good observation that you can ask a should question that the child just isn't capable of answering. And if they can't answer it, as a general rule, it's, it's, it's bad teaching to ask a question that they can't answer. Um, and therefore, if you want to ask the question, then prepare them for it, and maybe it's going to take 11 years before you can ask it, but take as much time. If there's some question that's really important to you that you want to ask your children, write it down, and then prepare them to answer it. Um, As for literature and relativism, that is is a a very common question that we get. And I I think it's related to the other question that might be the other side of it is there's a double risk with with asking the should question, which is to say there's a double risk when you make decisions. Um, The the, the risk on the one hand is is that you will make this decision based on circumstances, on, on a relativistic approach, and, you know, it's, it's, that's all there is to it. The other risk is that you will moralize, that you will impose on this circumstance, some rule that may or may not apply, but it's the one you're thinking about. And so you, you, you put it there. When you're teaching children um, rhetoric, and you're using the should question to do so, you should avoid both of those. Sometimes, though, the should question is just practical, right? It's sometimes it would it work if you did this. That, that is a should question. Would it work if you did this? Um, sometimes sometimes the should question is moral, sometimes it's uh, ethical, sometimes it's, it's um, athletic, right? Sometimes it's physical. So um, what, what, you, what you learn by asking the should question a lot is what I just said, that there's a lot of different kinds of should question. And that's not relativism, that's just existence, right? Um, a, a comparison, if I may, is the comparison question. Everything you do, everything you think depends on the comparison question. And if, and if, and if, you, if you teach a two, three, well, I was going to say grade, but let, let's say a three, four-year-old child to compare things, you're teaching them what those things are. And you're making them aware of how to compare, which they do anyway. You might find out that by comparing two things, you identify a cause and effect relationship between them you might find out that compare, comparing two things, you identify similarities and differences between them, right? So, so metaphor and simile, those are comparisons. Hyperbole and, and, and uh, litotes, those are comparisons. Um, um, every sentence really is in a certain sense a comparison. We're always innately, unavoidably comparing things because that's how God made us, right? It's, it's a gift from God. I, I think even animals do this. I don't know how they couldn't. The difference is we can be conscious of it, right? So, so the should question and the comparison question are two, two underlying questions that we're always asking. We can't not ask these questions. And so the reason we, we, we build rhetoric around it is because they are laying foundations for all thought. The other, I should just end with this having gone over again. Um, right. When we teach the should question, the lost tools of writing, it's just a starting point. It's just a starting point. Level one of the Lost Tools of Writing is a caricature of writing. My goodness, there's, the, your, your kids aren't going to write good essays at the end of level one of Lost Tools of Writing. They're not going to write good essays at the end of anything else at that age either. Not unless they read a lot and translate and think deeply about life all the time, in which case the Lost Tools of Writing is probably going to make it too simple. But it is going to give them structure. It is going to build fundamental skills, and it's going to take the whole process of thought and communication and turn it into into something, um, something that they can understand. When they do it, they can understand it better, you see, and it's going to make them aware of what they're doing when they're thinking. That's what level one does. Level two and three, by the time they finish level three, they're in a different world, and now... Um, we've got the comparison essay, which is, which is, you just have to finish level one, but it shows you how you can go down all these trails. And then, and then, um, we've actually begun work. If I, I hope I don't get in trouble for saying this, but we've actually begun work on the senior thesis and a senior thesis done according to the principles of classical rhetoric will be different. It'll be, it'll be different because, because the the student who's, Who's taken this caricature that they started with in level one and then developed it and let the seeds grow? They will be able to handle more complex structures and they will be able to handle more intuitive perceptions, and they will be able to, to engage with an audience better. All of those things follow. But none of them are there vividly in level one. You can't teach that way any more than you can teach calculus to a fourth grader. So that's that's the long roundabout way of. Starting with the should question and then covering the whole world. Well, let me just quickly answer Jenny's question. Level level one shouldn't be thought of so much as an age as, as the the beginning point. So for example, if you're teaching, if you want to learn how to play piano, you don't you don't ask yourself what what grade is what what age is this music program for, although there'll be differences you know, across dimensions of a child's life. But basically what you do is you find level one and you do it. And if you're older, you're going to go faster. And if you're younger, you're probably going to go slower. Think of, the, think of writing the same way. Now, having said that, it is abstract and it is dependent on reading. A child who can't read can't do level one. And generally speaking, I say that if a child is in ninth grade and hasn't yet started the lost tools of writing, he needs to before it's too late. If a child is in seventh and eighth grade and has a decent background in writing has has done some writing understands it well enough basic concepts of grammar then start them in seventh or eighth grade but give them a couple years in level one if they're in sixth grade and they're they're a very gifted writer or a very wide reader and have a lot of experience that that they can move into it and and easily move through it then you could do it but i would certainly take at least two years there's there's no hurry it's a contemplative program. It's, it's meant, it's a very, it's just not, it's not a method, right? It's not a method. It's a contemplation of writing. It's a contemplation of the tools and it's an internalization of thought processes. When, when, for example, you look at the exercise pages, don't ever let yourself call them worksheets. It might even say that for all I know, but they're not worksheets. They're exercise pages. In fact, even exercise pages, I don't like. Think of them as mental templates. Right. What they are is they're patterns that you should imitate when you think in order to do what people do when they think about this stuff. You see what I mean? They're templates. They're patterns of thought. And they're here. They are on paper so that you can basically do them. But you're not going to get good at it by finishing a worksheet and handing it in any more than you're going to get good at dancing by finishing a worksheet and handing it in. Right. You practice it and you follow that same pattern over and over again. So that's that's how I would approach it. Is is um, don't worry too much about the age unless they're very young. But it, by, if they're in ninth grade or up, you better get them in there because life is getting almost over. Rising eighth grader. Oh sure. If they've done all that, if they've done CAP and all that, oh sure. Yeah, they're yeah. Still start in level one. They're ready, but start in level one. Because level one is very, it's digging foundations. And the first couple essays are going to be very boring, very tedious. They're going <laughs> to, but you, you, you got to make them do it. In fact, some kids, they'll go, oh, this is all there is to it. And they, you know, take 10 minutes on the first essay and think they can write anything now. But you're going to build on it. phobic eighth grader. Love it. Yeah. Absolutely. Make sure he's spending five minutes a day practicing penmanship with something beautiful like Spencerian penmanship. If he just does that for five minutes a day, it'll help a lot. Katie, you got another question?
0: Well, you've answered more than five, so uh-huh. I think the question is...
1: Some of know. them were this practical side trail stuff.
0: Well, I
2: still think...
0: Okay. If people are up for another question, I do have another question. Actually, I think this is one that people are going to be interested in hearing about. That The other ones weren't. They were, um, but I'm I'm expecting this to be interesting because of the quarantine and people making decisions for the fall. Um, could you compare and contrast? I know you hate it when people say that, but I'm going to say. Why do it you things. always
1: accuse me of hating people saying things?
0: Okay, I know you always correct me when I say that, but I'm saying it for clarity. Home, um, the benefits of learning in a classroom setting and learning in a one-on-one types homeschool setting.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. One-on-one. If you're teaching a skill, it's fantastic. Skills, skills are coached. And if you can, if you can get one-on-one attention with a skill, man. So in a school setting, if you're a teacher and you want to, and you want to coach your kids in a skill, you want to get as close as you can to one-on-one. Right? And so that's why, for example, in a math class, you might have 30 kids in a math class, but you'll, you'll break them into groups. And you'll, that, that's how it was when I was a kid. There'd be 30 kids in a math class, but you, you break them up in, in groups. Um, so so that, would be, that would be a benefit of home, of being one-on-one. A benefit of the community is that they feed on each other, that, that if they're guided properly, and, you, and this is where should questions are so valuable, if you ask, a, uh, if you're reading a novel like you're reading Anna Karenina, and you say something like, "Do you think, uh, do you think uh, Kitty Let Levine should marry Kitty?" Most most kids are interested in that question. And 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 when I read anything, I remember it bothered me profoundly as a child to discover that I could read a novel or a, a, a play at school or something. I could read the whole Dad Gum thing, and there would be things that classmates would say that I never, ever, ever would have thought of. And that made me feel stupid at the time because I was just dumb that way, but, which was kind of stupid. But the, uh, the fact is that when you read a book, you come to it with your mind and its limitations, and other people have theirs, and there's something magical about the way you can feed each other. So, so to have a communal encounter with a book is extremely valuable. So when it comes to contemplating ideas, when it comes to, to reflecting on an artifact in order to get at the ideas within it, maybe even music or maybe even a picture, right? Um, to have other people to think about it with, I think, is important. If, therefore, you're homeschooling a child and there's just one child and it's you and that child, focus on the skills. Um, do order, order the content that you want them to learn. That's also very valuable. But try to find some way, some setting in which they can interact with other people about the ideas that you want them to think about. It could be a Sunday school class. It could it could be that you just have friends over on Fridays and watch a movie and then insist that if you're gonna watch a movie, you have to talk about it. Right. And and then you, you know, you, you ask you ask, what do you think? Should so and so do this and that, right? And then and they don't know that you're giving them an education. Just watch the movie and talk about it. So, so that would be the biggest advantages one way or the other is, is that in the, in the home setting, the one-on-one setting, you can give so much good coaching. And in the, in the group setting, you can, you can contemplate ideas so much. So, oh, absolutely. You can use this question to evaluate historical events. One of my favorite sequences is you ask, should Washington have crossed the Delaware? Great question, I think. I like to point out that I've done it and nobody cared. So why, does pe- why do people care about Washington doing it? So there's a comparison, right? Um, why do, should Washington have crossed the Delaware? Should Lewis and Clark have, have crossed the, uh, the Mississippi? Should, um, should Caesar have crossed the Rubicon? Should Moses have crossed the Red Sea? All of a sudden, by this one simple historical question that you keep asking, you've studied all world history which I think is pretty cool. It's a world of river crossings. So yeah, the should question is, that's what history is. Should God have saved France through Joan of Arc? (laughs) I love when we're asking if God should have done something. (laughs) (laughs) Should God have saved France through Joan of Arc? Man, that's, what did you say, Mr. Speechless, Andrew? I mean, I know you're speechless, so what could you say? (laughs) Nothing, yeah. Well, surely it wasn't me that asked you that question. Well, there you go. So, so Rosario, Rosario is, I think, is referring to um, Washington crossing the Delaware, right? Now, what's happened? She just brought up the topic of circumstances. It's Christmas Day, right? A great question. I love to ask the question, well, what was happening when, when so-and-so did that? Should the ants have fed the grasshopper? What was happening when the ants fed the grasshopper or didn't feed the grasshopper? Oh, scary, OK. So, so you know, then the, the, the what was happening question or the what would happen if, right? If, if Washington crosses the Delaware, what will happen? If Washington doesn't cross the Delaware, what will happen? Right. I'm telling you, that is so much more interesting to the kid. As opposed to here, read this chapter in which Washington crosses the Delaware. Oh, and by the way. Washington crossing the Delaware shows you just how clever Washington was and how brave he was because nobody else would ever have stood up in his boat there, and especially in the, in the icy Delaware River with a flag that wasn't yet made behind him. And, and doing it on Christmas Day, what a clever guy he is. Now answer these three questions. I mean, what do you wanna do, murder your child's soul? But, but if, you ask the, if you ask the should question, you're asking the question they're wondering why everybody's not asking, because they are reacting. They are going, wow, that was stupid. If your kid says of a historical character, if your child
2: says, wow, that was stupid, you got them. That's, that's perfect. Why do you think so? What, what, what's going to happen? Now they're interested, because they can have an opinion.
1: Right? The, the opinion is like this little cherry put on top of a, of a homework assignment in a typical history book. It's the last thing. Some, you have to go through hell to earn the right to have an opinion. It does build up the child's vocabulary, it makes them human.
2: It, they've, yeah,
1: they, they will know so much more. Not only will they know so much more than any textbook would ever teach them, they'll care about it and they'll remember it. And one reason they'll remember it is because. Last year, you talked about Moses crossing the Red Sea, and this year, you're talking about Lewis and Clark crossing the, the Mississippi, so you say, well, let's compare the two. How is, how, last year, you said Moses should cross the Red Sea, so why are you saying he shouldn't cross the Mississippi? Surely, if Moses crosses the Red Sea, then it's always okay to cross rivers, right? Because that's how kids think, right? So then you ask, how are they the same? How are they different? And now they're becoming moral thinkers and practical thinkers and, and circumstantial thinkers. But They're not becoming relativists. They're becoming practical. Right? You guys are getting me all wound up now.
0: Um, it's 9.58, which means you have two minutes. Oh, one minute. It's 9.59 to say any other thoughts that you're desperate to get out. and then
1: we I have- want to respond to this comment about literature and history. It does work amazingly well with, with history. It might, might possibly that be that you study with lit, struggle with literature because you're, you're, you're making the difference between literature and history too great, right? The same basic question. In both cases, you have a narrative about a character who has a problem that he has to solve, right? And so, so let, let the literature tell itself. But what you'll find is that the sorts of answers And the approaches will be different. And what that will lead to is that when they get older and it matters that this is history and this is literature, they will have in their bones, in their souls, a feeling for the difference between history and literature, not the idea that this is this kind of textbook and gives you this kind of grade, and this is that kind of textbook and gives you that kind of grade, right? They will actually be able, they will understand that in the end, you have to study them differently. And they'll be able to understand that in the end, you have to study them differently because they started out studying them the same way, right? Whereas in school, you start out with a textbook. There's no difference between a history textbook and a literature textbook except the content. But what you're doing intellectually is basically the same. And so you don't, I mean, if you read, you're gonna see the difference, but you don't really really gain an appreciation for the, the different set of tools that arise from the same set of tools that you use to do literature. And David Hicks talks about this, by the way, in the prologue to, to, to Norms and Nobility. He makes two points that I think are important when you think about classical rhetoric. One is, he says we should, he, he wanted, he, he at first he was arguing for history, and then he said he changed his mind, and he said the historical framework probably isn't the best thing to use. Instead, you should use a normative framework. In other words, instead of asking what happened, when, in what order, you should ask, what should they have done? That's a normative question. Right. And then and then the second thing he said, I forgot. um, Had related it related to the history and interest and literature thing. Um, Oh, he said that he said that um, in history and literature, you're basically asking the same normative question. Right. And that is what should they do? And you are, you are getting moral formation out of it, but you're not moralizing. And that's so important. You, you're not going to morally form or help a child morally
2: f- mature by moralizing. It's, you're going to, you're going to get, an, you're going to get annoyed kids when you do that.
0: Can I interject a thought? Yes, please. I think that people who grow up naturally thinking with a normative question in across the subjects um, very naturally apply it to things like science, and we don't teach it with science, um, but I found that things like experiment, you're constantly asking, what should I do next, what should I do next, if you're given the freedom to explore, um, but in the modern education system, you're always being told steps to take, like recipes things to you. And the normative question is stolen from you. Right. Um, so I think it's actually very crucial to incorporate, especially back into science.
1: And, and I think that relates to Andrew Poudoua's talk comment there about translating the common topics into more definite questions. That and, and, and somebody said that's true. And I totally agree. What we're trying to do, for example, with the lost tools of writing is to take the, the common topic of definition and come up with specific questions to ask to help them define, right? You're teaching them specific, concrete ways to do it. That then does enter into your science approach, right? In science, what are you trying to do? You're trying to determine what something is, or you're trying to determine what effect this cause will have, or you're trying to ask what caused this effect. It's the same questions. It's the same questions, but you're asking it in a different context. And, and then and then, and then something, or what something isn't? right? so then, so then you, you, you end up realizing that science and history and literature are different, but you also realize that the way you think of them is both different and the same. And you've got the trunk, right? When they're children, you want to s- establish the trunk of the tree of learning. And when they're older, they can branch off, but how can they branch off from this branch here to that branch there if if you didn't give them the trunk, right? And this is why everybody has to specialize in our society. We don't have any bridges, right? And and that's why everybody loves the computer world so much, that that whole ecosystem, which is utterly fragmented. You can, I think we were talking about it before, I'll just say it again, you can learn, you can master Zoom and know almost nothing about the next piece of software right? Because all it is, is you got to hit the right button. But you have to remember the button. You have to remember the password. You have to, and then now they have software to help you remember your passwords, which only means the passwords are going to get even more complicated. And then you're going to have to have a way to use that software. And everybody has this fantasy that it's going to be like Star Trek, where you can, you can call from all over the world with the cell phone and you can take your body, decompose it and go to another planet because they have this idea that the whole earth comes together and It's going to be the exact opposite. Look, what we're living through, in my opinion, on the Tower of Babel, I mean, in the computers, is the Tower of Babel. We're we're building a tower to the sky, and it's going to tear us to shreds because it's presuming to make us one on a basis that can't possibly work. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Doesn't matter what the author chose. You know what? Let's pick that up. Let's pick that up in the next because it's 1005. Does it matter what the author chose? We read what the author chose. Um, I'm not exactly sure what this means, chose, in relation to the the big decision that the character had to deal with. Um, it's
0: referring to a question that came earlier. Okay. So I think I can, I can pull those and save them okay. for okay. next time. Yeah.
1: Okay. Let, yeah, let's pick it up. Yeah, IAW is a fabulous, fabulous trunk, if you like, I say this all the time, and, and Andrew, you correct me if you disagree with this because I don't want to misrepresent IEW, but IEW and, and Lost Tools of Writing are, are, are intimately connected to each other in philosophy. The big, huge difference is that because the structure and style is written for younger children, they're imitating something already written, right? That, I see that as kind of the way it does invention. You're, you're going to do the keyword outline, and you're training your memory you're training your reading skills, all of that. And you're doing it by imitating something already written. What, what Lost Tools of Writing then does is when they're older, right? When they're older, then what you're doing is imitating not what somebody wrote, but the thought process they went through just- to write that. You see the difference? But, um, but a, a child can't really do that, not without a lot of hand-holding. So you can ask these questions to very young children. But you can't expect them to write an essay, right? When they're older, that's when you can get them actually writing essays. It does go back to something as simple as show, don't tell, doesn't
0: it? Okay, Dad, you got to wrap it up. Yeah, done. done. Okay, great. Then on Tuesday, we will pick up these questions again. Thanks for coming, everyone.
1: Yeah, and if you're interested in Katie's class, don't forget, you got you got until about next Wednesday to sign up, and you're going to wish you did if you didn't. <laughs> I believe that, but, you know, probably shouldn't just say it that way. Okay,
2: may um, the Lord remember you in his kingdom.
1: Planning for your next trip?